I'm not going to lie. 90% of this podcast is caused by me zoning out in the shower and then, like, yelling something to myself. Uh, It's one of the good things about living alone when you accidentally blank and stare at a wall for 15 minutes and then yell, Mads Mikkelsen! There's no one around to worry about it. If Alex yells Danish names in the shower and no one is around to hear it, does she really make a sound? Maybe. (laughs) Uh, And apologies to my neighbours. Anyway, this aside is inspired by real events, namely that I'd been struggling to think about what to write about for this week, so I looked at my content plan and it just said, gay villains! (laughs) Which, like, yeah, okay, but what's the angle? Fortunately, I'd just read the completely batshit interview with Mads Mikkelsen in Vulture. You're probably familiar with Mikkelsen's face, even if the name isn't ringing a bell. He was Hannibal in the Hannibal series. He was the villain in Casino Royale. And perhaps my favourite, he was the bitch in Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money music video. He also plays a character in the notoriously odd video game Death Stranding. He was in a film that won an Oscar for the Best International Feature this year, and he keeps accidentally going viral for doing things like cracking open a bottle of vodka in the middle of a press conference. He's weird, and I love him. Uh, He also plays a villain a lot. Um, I think it's something about his very severe face. He looks like he's full of secrets and also plotting my demise. And I like that in a man. Anyway, in the Vulture interview, he said the thing that I have been saying about Casino Royale for years, namely that it is extremely gay. (laughs) To refresh your memory, Mickelson's villain strips Daniel Craig's bond naked, ties him to a chair, and exacts several hours of cock and ball torture. If you've ever tried to talk to me about James Bond before, I've definitely yelled, Casino Royale has an extended cock and ball torture scene and we don't talk about that enough at you. It's a super gay movie and Mads Mikkelsen is a gay villain. Is this an angle for the podcast? Maybe. (laughs) I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today I'm thinking about Bond villains. My general approach to watching movies is anything can be gay if you try hard enough. And to be honest, I don't often have to try that hard. (laughs) Sometimes the subtext is just the text, especially when it comes to villains. I, I think most of us are probably familiar with the idea that a lot of villains on our screens are pretty heavily queer coded. This is a hangover from the production code in the late 20s and 30s. We've talked about it on the pod before. Uh, But the Motion Picture Association's production code was essentially a list of things that you could and couldn't show on film. One of the enduring big bads from this era was sexual perversion, which is a euphemistic way of saying no gays allowed. To get around this, your gays went subtextual. Lots of longing glances and well-dressed men with sharp tongues. But there was still a lot of lingering anxiety about homosexuality, and a lot of those portrayals ended up being of untrustworthy or villainous characters. If you're staring at the ceiling and struggling to think of a character example, uh, (laughs) welcome to the pod, my heterosexual friends. Every single gay knows what I'm talking about. Uh, But let me slide you a couple of quick gimmies. 
basically every Disney villain is gay uh, because we love to start kids early with this stuff. Um, but the best example, I think, is Ursula from The Little Mermaid, whose character design is literally based off the iconic drag queen Divine. Almost every portrayal of the devil is gay. It's why Little Nas X made that video. For a more specific recent example, think about something like um, Ewan McGregor playing Roman Sionis in Birds of Prey. He's fussy, he's narcissistic, he definitely wants to make out with his homicidal right-hand man. It's classic villain shit. But what's that got to do with Mads Mikkelsen bashing a nude Daniel Craig's dick with a big rope? Great question. James Bond's always kind of a lone wolf figure. He's like the pinnacle of all things debonair and masculine. Only he can get the job done. Part of that job also inevitably involves at least one act of heterosexual seduction, which means, uh, like it or not, James Bond's penis is basically a character in its own right within the franchise, <laughs> which also means that it's frequently threatened by his nemeses, often very deliberately and very explicitly. You can almost say that many of the villains in the Bond franchise are as interested in his penis as he is, which is kind of homoerotic, to be honest. So I thought we could take a little look at what it actually takes to make a Bond villain. Are they all devious homosexuals trying to emasculate Bond, both metaphorically, through their insidious campness, and literally, sometimes with laser beams to the crotch? Or is there a little bit more, like, nuance there? Does their fixation on his penis say something about the prevailing attitude toward homosexuality, or is it more a reflection on Bond? And most importantly, why does no one talk about the extended cock and ball torture scene in Casino Royale? <laughs> These are all big and important questions. So let's get into it, shall we? I think the best place to start looking at the evolution of Bond villains is to start looking at the evolution of James Bond himself. Bond's kind of a unique character in franchise cinema in that he's actor agnostic, meaning that he can be cycled out of the role as needed without rebooting the sequence of the films. I can't really think of another franchise that behaves in the same way. The closest I can possibly think of is like superhero movies, but for most of these, each of those retellings resets the story or the universe. Like Spider-Man, for example, um, Peter Parker has just been bitten by so many radioactive spiders, and Uncle Ben has died so many times. But James Bond is essentially allowed to come and go as Hollywood dictates. Sean Connery, who was the first to play the role, made five Bond films before being switched out for George Lazenby, who was so poorly received by audiences he made only one film before they switched back in Connery again. Timothy Dalton was considered too angsty and he was booted after two films to be replaced by Pierce Brosnan. All told, six actors have played James Bond, excluding David Niven in the original Casino Royale, who I'm not counting because I don't want to. <laughs> and each of them have brought something different to the role. Connery really laid the groundwork for the perception of Bond on screen. He has a very particular physicality and brawniness, which combined with the uh, zingy wit throughout, blends this British snobbery with a kind of enough violence to make him a palatable character for the American market. Notably, Bond's creator, Ian Fleming, really hated Connery as Bond, and he wanted someone more debonair for the role, specifically David Niven. 
Uh, but the producer, Albert Broccoli, thought that in order to actually meet the requirements of the character, they were better off taking someone who was unpolished but tough, like Connery, and teaching them to be a gentleman rather than taking a gentleman and teaching him to exude the kind of tough that Broccoli was envisaging. More colorfully homophobic language was used than what I've just described, um, if I'm being honest, but I'll spare you. Anyway, Connery made such a strong impression that it's probably inevitable that Lazenby's follow-up was kind of a flop. He was a more emotional and vulnerable Bond who found a wife and then had her murdered brutally in front of him. So they coaxed Connery back for one final run before Roger Moore was brought in to drag it back around to this like loyal, sophisticated Bond image, complete with zippy one-liners. Dalton, as mentioned, went dark and morally compromised, which went over like a lead balloon. So they brought in Pierce Brosnan to bring back the slick sophisticate, but with additional skills and updated gadgetry. And then finally, Daniel Craig, who's managed to keep the masculine sheen, but also blend some of those more complex elements that were previously dismissed in Lazenby and Dalton. All these changes in characterization are driven by shifting social values and the fluctuating symbolism of the action hero. A 1960s Bond doesn't make sense for an 80s, 90s or noughties film. And because this is the case, each incarnation of Bond must have a villain set up as a complete moral counterpoint to them, like a mirror image but in evil. Connery's Bond reflects something about the ideal of masculinity throughout the 1960s. He's strong, capable, intelligent, but there's also this air of the playboy about him. He moves really easily through rich and famous circles while still maintaining the fighting smarts of the working class that come with Connery's bodybuilding Scottish roots. And as such, Connery's nemesis must exist as a counterpoint to that. So if you think about the classic Goldfinger, for example, the titular character is wealthy. He has to pay for the company of women, although apparently he doesn't sleep with them. And he's much less physically capable than Bond. He obsessively accumulates gold because he's fascinated by its shimmering colour. So even without the subtext of a man who cannot compete with Bond's virility, Goldfinger is still a very obvious contrast to Bond. It shouldn't be a surprise then that his attempts to intimidate Bond take a turn for the psychosexual. First he tries to scare him off by having a henchman knock Bond unconscious and then encasing his own female associate who's uh, paid to be seen and only seen with him and who Bond just whisked away in gold. Later, he straps Bond to a table in a prone position and points a very phallic laser at his crotch to slice him in half, literally emasculating the perfect specimen of 1960s manhood with a big funky laser is exactly the kind of villainous behaviour you'd expect during a time when one of the great social concerns was the steady stream of women demanding equal rights in the home and workforce. Dick lays it off by some guy at work? Sudden upheaval from your masculine role at the head of the household? That's the same thing, baby! But compare this example to Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. As a masculine figure, he's more complex, uh, at least partially because he exists in a much longer lineage of both action movies and Bond films. One of the oft-talked-about scenes is his emergence, shirtless and dripping wet, from the ocean in only his swimming trunks. 
It's a direct reference to the iconic scene in Dr. No, which is the first of the Connery-led Bond films, where Bond observes Honey Rider emerging from the ocean in her white bikini. Except this time, Bond is the object, observed appraisingly by both the Bond girl and her villainous lover. It's an interesting choice, given that it moves Bond's visual allegiance from the Connery lineage and aligns him with the various dead, mangled, and emotionally scarred women that litter the Bond cinematic universe. Lisa Funnel, an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma who writes a lot about James Bond, thinks that this so-called contradictory body, which is at the same time sort of extremely physical and heroic when it's in action, and then feminized through like a passivity to the gaze when out of those action scenarios, makes Craig's Bond a hybrid Bond and Bond girl. Which I'm inclined to agree with, to be honest. Plot-wise, the film serves as the makings of a Bond. He earns his double O status at the beginning of the movie, and then he spends the next couple of hours struggling against emotion. He's a Bond in flux, and given the heavily gendered nature of the Bond character, it makes sense to have that instability be represented by a blend with the feminine in the film. This more complex Bond also aligns socially with our changed expectations for masculinity. They aren't as rigid as they once were, and the hard Bond who would just as quickly slap a woman as sleep with her is not something we kind of comfortably accept without explanation. But if that's the case, we couldn't possibly be working ourselves up into another gay panic. Surely we have something else to work with. Look, I know that I keep saying cock and ball torture, and I promise that this is the last time. But the torture of James Bond at the hands of Le Chiffre, played by Mads Mikkelsen, is so equal parts brutal and homoerotic that according to Mikkelsen in that batshit interview I mentioned at the top, it almost didn't make the cut. Essentially, Le Chiffre kidnaps Bond and ties him to a hollowed-out wicker chair so that his penis is exposed. And the first words out of Mads Mikkelsen's mouth when they're alone are, Wow, you've taken good care of your body. Such a waste. Before smashing a heavy rope against his genitals. After a bit of witty back and forth, Le Chiffre leans down and whispers, Will you yield? And when Bond replies that he won't, he earns another whack with the rope. But rather than screaming in pain, he starts mockingly replying with sounds of pleasure, screaming yes in an agonized voice that mimics ecstasy. It's all very, very bdsm <laughs> Which is not to say that various Bonds haven't encountered bondage scenarios before. If they're tied up at all, it's often in ways that recall S&M scenes. In The World Is Not Enough, for example, Bond is strapped to a wooden torture device with spread legs that is designed to slowly cut off his oxygen while the villainess straddles him. But it's rarely quite so explicit as screaming, yes, 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 while having your testicles pummeled as your assailant cries a single tear of blood like some sort of haunted Virgin Mary statue. Lisa Funnel thinks this type of graphic torture is actually a way of showcasing Bond's masculinity. He's able to endure the torture even as his penis is so extensively assaulted that he requires a long hospital stay afterwards. And he's later shown sort of passionately boinking the Bond girl, presumably after his junk is fully recovered. 
Funnel argues that this aligns him with more contemporary action heroes and moves him away from that lover type of model that he might have had in earlier incarnations. If you think about this in comparison to Goldfinger, where the villain ties Bond up and then goes to leave the room so that Bond can be alone with his complex emasculation machine, this torture requires a much more intimate type of interaction. Even at the peak of physical exertion and strategic advantage, Le Chiffre doesn't have what it takes to break James Bond. It's kind of the Bond equivalent of that scene in every action movie where the hero gets knocked with a headshot that makes his ears ring or cops a bullet to some painful but ultimately not lethal part of his body. But then he thinks of his daughter slash wife slash army buddies slash, I don't know, mailman, (laughs) and he pulls it together at the last minute. This type of moment makes Bond a real hero, even in his new role that is both Bond and Bond girl. Beyond that contrast, I also think there's something to be said for the villainous alignment with a sort of deviant sexuality in the Bond films. I'm not using deviant in the production code, homosexuals are perverts who should burn in hell type of way either. I'm using it in the sense that a lot of the erotic overtones of the Bond villains mingle sexual pleasure really closely with death or danger. In Goldeneye, which is the first of the Pierce Brosnan movies, the villainous Xenia Onatop is a sadistic, lust-driven killer who moans in ecstasy as she crushes men to death between her thighs and shoots up buildings. It turns out there's a word for that, by the way. Um, it's erotophonophilia, in case you were wondering. And I will have once again destroyed my search algorithm by trying to reverse engineer what I was trying to say through the power of Google. Anyway, my point is, I was trying to think why so many Bond villains seem to align themselves with this particular paraphilia when it is exceedingly rare in real life. Uh, And I think I've got it. Essentially, James Bond's sexuality is also kind of deviant, but in a very conventional way. He's promiscuous, adverse to love, and pretty sexually aggressive, if we're being honest. None of those things are generally portrayed as especially charming traits in cinema. They're usually problems to overcome. Part of the reason that some of the elements of the older Bond films have aged so terribly is that they're really misogynistic, even for their time. But this is counteracted by the linking of sex, death, and assault with the villains. So using Goldeneye as an example again, there's a moment where Bond like grabs his love interest and she struggles against him as they kiss before she eventually submits, which would be much worse to watch were it not for the fact that the male villain had tried the same move with her 15 minutes earlier in the film and she didn't submit. It makes it much easier to negate the actual violence of the moment because the audience has been shown that she would fight back if she was really having a bad time. By aligning villains with sex and death, we're better able to accept Bond as a hero, even when he's sort of technically transgressing. All this is to say that the Bond villains' preoccupation with James Bond's big red rocket are overall less about some lingering fear of homosexuals and more to do with the nature of Bond himself. While there are certainly persistent attempts to emasculate him, their meanings have changed over time. Sometimes getting your dick beaten up makes you even more of a tough guy. Well, uh, those are my Bond thoughts. 
I've gotten enough euphemisms for Wang in here to kind of launch an erotic fiction career. So if you've got thoughts about what my Bond Girl-esque double entendre erotic fiction pen name should be, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. 